This episode of adulting covers a very serious subject, the subject of consent. This also may be a triggering episode for some listeners. Welcome to Adulting, a podcast where we want to adult every day. Download episodes at adulting.tv. Welcome to Adulting. I'm Harlan Landis, and I'm here with Miranda Marquit. How are you doing, Miranda? I'm doing okay. About ready to get riled up, though. Yeah, I'm already a little bit riled up as we were kind of preparing for this uh, before we started recording here, talking about sexual consent. There are a lot of things about the debate, if we call it a debate about consent, that I just can't believe that we're still talking about in the year 2016. Yeah, it's a little bit crazy because you would think, hey, you know, I'm in charge of my body. I'm in charge of my boundaries. I, When I say no, it should mean that. And if I'm not capable of saying no, you should be a decent enough human being to realize that. Yeah, I think the whole debate, again, is you have to use the context of, of history and long history in Western civilization, where women and wives have been the quote-unquote property of men and husbands. And even though throughout history there have been many instances of women's rights exercised at various points throughout history, even as far back as biblical times, it still has perpetuated. And even in the United States today, we have pockets of communities where the idea of men and women being equal on a sexual level and having the same rights and having the same responsibilities and having the same needs and having the same uh, room for expressing their desires or lack of desires. There are some areas of the country that haven't moved in lockstep with everyone else. And so there is this debate over whether men can do what they want whenever they want based on consent or even without negative consent with with just this, you know, if there's no discussion at all, does that mean that there's consent to progress with something sexual or there's not consent. So there are these questions that still exist, even though for the most part, I think most of us agree sexual consent is necessary before doing something that someone else might not want. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I think where some of this comes in is some of the expectations we have. Remember back in the 1950s and, and early 60s. Decades that neither you, there, and I were alive during. Right, exactly. But you read some of the things that they wrote about back then or some of the so-called rules of deportment that you have. And one of the things that you find out is that you know women were expected to basically put out for their husbands. It didn't matter whether they felt like it. Didn't matter any of that business. They were expected to. And the reality and there was this expectation that if you were married, you gave that consent implicitly. You married the guy, consent is assumed no matter what. And in, in fact, uh, marital rape laws were <laughs> are still somewhat rare. Well, no, they're more prevalent now, but specific laws addressing marital rape 
are relatively new developments because it just didn't exist in society's mind. So that's one of the things you have to go back to is, well, okay, well, what does constitute consent and interest and a desire to do this? Because like I said, back in the day, the idea was, well, if you married the person, then you have given your implicit consent for every single time. And of course, the way we look at this today, that is not the case. Well, we'd like to think that, but but there are still, like you said, pockets of the country or pockets of the area where that's still kind of implied. If you look at kind of the evangelical movement, the sort of quiverful movement, some of these really conservative movements, the idea is not only is the consent is implied, but it's a requirement because you're supposed to do the work of bringing as many children into the world as possible. So there are still pockets where that sort of mindset, uh, while not explicitly stated, is still very much part of the culture. Right. So you're saying that there are pockets where rape is allowed. All right. So let's let's move on a little. But it's bit. not. Consi- what, what, but that's the thing. It's not considered rape. It's considered your duty. And and can, well, and you don't I mean, even think you don't even think about whether or not you should be saying yes or whether or not you want to do it. It's my husband's asked for this. I'm supposed to be procreating. This is what I am supposed to do. It's it's not even a question of oh hey, do I feel like doing this today, or do I want to do this? It doesn't even come it, in. It doesn't matter. But I you're saying whether it's considered and you know what does that mean? Who's considering these things? I mean, there's a definition here. And it's rape. And whether it's considered rape doesn't matter. It still is rape. And whether the evangelical societies encourage women to be raped is probably something that they have to look at. But, you know, it's not going to be this thing where everybody suddenly agrees that women and men have equal rights sexually. It's been a process. So this is something that is, over time, we're getting to that point. And certain areas or certain groups or certain microcultures are holding on to these kind of, these, these beliefs that have worked for their societies over time, these feelings aren't going to work, and they'll have to adapt to this broader society where we are giving equal sexual rights to women. They are allowed to say no, just like men are allowed to say no. And they will have to figure out how to deal, or there will eventually, I mean, who knows how long it's going to take, and perhaps it's going to take some time, but there will eventually be consequences for people who hold on to these beliefs. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. I just I just think it's interesting that, you know, what we're dealing with is there are just as much as we'd like to say, oh, hey, you know, consent is consent is consent. You have to sit back and say, well, what does consent mean? Okay, so so let's what talk kind about of, that. What kind of state do I have to be in? Is it consent if I've, if I've been raised my whole life? You know, I may not object to having sex with my husband anytime he asks for it. It may not be an objection to me. But is it true consent if I've been raised my whole life to say, okay, whenever he asks for it, you have to give it to him. It is your duty to give it to him. Is that true consent just because I don't object to it? I mean, that's that's where I think it starts to get a little bit interesting. And, and it kind of goes back into let's let's back out of that sort of um, conservative mindset a little bit. But what about is it really consent? Let's say if I have a boyfriend who demands 
oral sex, but I don't feel comfortable asking for it in return. Is that true consent? Because I feel pressured to pleasure him, but feel like I'm not able to ask for that pleasure in return. Okay. Well, you asked a lot of questions. I know, there. right? There, there are a lot so, of questions. Well, I mean, one at a time. You know, first of all, everybody is a product of the environment that they grew up in. If you've grown up in an enclosed society where rape is normal, let's say, you don't feel that there's anything wrong with not expressing your desires. I mean, it's your your desires are affected by how you grew up as well. So you may not realize you you just you you may have gotten to the point and i'm not saying you miranda i'm just saying someone who grows up in this society where women are just expected to provide sex to men whenever they feel like it that person who's in that situation hasn't had the chance to really identify themselves as a human being and as an individual and figure out what their own desires are. It's just never been a part of what they've thought about or how they've grown up. I really think that this is a vast, vast minority of people in this country. In fact, you know, there are other articles where the vast majority of millennials say are a lot more comfortable expressing their own sexual desires, uh, women and men, and women are taking a lot more control over their sexual situations and are comfortable with the idea of understanding what consent is. Uh, they're comfortable with saying no, and it's it's in cases like it's in cases like that where we definitely run into some issues where we're, we're coming from a society where men are not used to women having such power in the sexual relationship. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right. It is a minority of people who are in these kinds of positions. But when you're living surrounded by that culture, it, it seems like this outsized situation that just like is in your face all the time. So I think it also depends, like you said, on where you are raised and where you're living right now and whether you're still immersed in that sort of mindset. Yeah. So you pointed out this article in The New York Times about these issues playing out right now at Brigham Young University, which is right there in the heart of Mormon country, uh, where you grew up, Miranda. So you, you're very familiar with that type of lifestyle. So what's what's going on at BYU? Yeah. So one of the thing that things that has been going on is there have been some questions about victims of sexual assault who have come forward to say that they have been assaulted, but then immediately after they've reported this assault, they're being investigated by the school's honor code office. Now, when you agree to go to BYU, when you go to BYU, you sign this honor code saying that you will live by certain rules and certain uh, <laughs> that you won't do certain things. You're not supposed to do alcohol, drugs. You have curfews, what times you can be in rooms. Uh, there are dress codes. There's all sorts of things that come with this honor code, and you sign it and say you'll abide by it. Well, and this is a private university, so right? in general, they can establish things like these. And in a perfect world, everybody knows what agreement they're signing when they sign it. So when they go to this college, they're expecting to live by this honor code. And so some of the issues that come up are that, so, you know, they have been trying to say, well, the honor code investigation is separate from the sexual assault case. But if you've been sexually assaulted and you're scared that you're going to be kicked out of school because of your honor code violation, what happens if you're three years in and you're kicked out of the school because of an honor code violation? Are you going to report your sexual assault? 
And some of these cases, there were, in fact, uh, some of there were some situations where uh, the women involved were, in fact, uh, <clears throat> violating honor code things. They might have had a little alcohol, or they might have been in somebody's room past curfew. And so, yeah. And and let's let's be realistic here. Probably almost a good majority of the students at the university, I would say, have some kind of honor code violation. So once you bring the attention to yourself, suddenly everything you've done becomes under scrutiny more so than someone who doesn't. So this oh, yeah. is this is definitely this policy. As this policy is in place, it it prevents people from speaking out because they know they, just like everyone, at, you know, just like a good portion of the student body at the university, has something that they don't want to be investigated in their past. And maybe it's something like having a drink. And it puts in this policy of fear that prevents people from speaking out when they have been assaulted or there is something that's going on. And uh, it's a policy that is very much uh, in place to keep people from speaking out against men. Yeah. And one of the things that I find very interesting about this whole thing is uh, a few years ago, one of their star basketball players was, in fact, involved in an honor code violation. Uh, He didn't end up getting kicked out of the school or anything. And there was a little bit of uproar over that as to (laughs) why he wasn't being held to the same standards as people who have been kicked out for doing the same thing. Uh, (laughs) Well, we all know athletes live on a different plane. But uh, anyway, part of the issue too was that you know some some of the women who came forward were not in situations where they had honor code violations that they were still raped even though they were following all the rules right but by coming forward they were immediately asked well where were you what were you doing had you been doing this and there were still Mm -hmm. investigations opened against them where I personally know at least 10 graduates of BYU who spent their entire time at school involved in honor code violations but they graduated and like you said there was no scrutiny on them because there was no you know there was there was there was no one to go to the honor code office and tattle that's another thing is if somebody tells on you somebody's like oh so and so is drinking in their apartment they'll open up an, an honor code investigation but there was nobody to say oh well they were drinking and there was nobody to say oh well they spent all summer cohabitating with with members of the opposite sex There was nobody to say that, and so they sailed through, no investigations, no problem. But the problem is once you come through with a sexual assault accusation, well, then all of a sudden there's proof right there that there might have been a violation, and that's when the investigations start. So it is kind of a a weird dynamic there, but I think it speaks to a wider culture of fear in general. Yeah, and it isn't only limited to BYU, and it isn't only limited to colleges, because Once you speak out and you raise an issue, whether there's an official investigation underway, everything you do becomes scrutinized regardless of whether there's an official investigation involved. And we see it all the time where, you know, especially in accusations of sexual assault, where people bring up things about the accuser or the victim that have no bearing on the facts of the matter 
and and the culture that allows that to happen will keep people quiet will prevent people from speaking out out of fear of personal scrutiny when they really have they really have something and so as a result there are you know I don't know what the statistics say I'm sure they're out there but I imagine there are a, a number a large number of cases that just go unreported because of the way victims are treated especially in the media, especially in their own communities, there is a huge stigma to being a victim. Oh, for sure. And kind of like I was saying before, it goes back to nobody says, oh, hey, you know, that rape shouldn't have happened. Very bad. That rape shouldn't have happened. Nobody says that. Everybody says, oh, well, what were you wearing? How late was it? Were you alone? Uh, How drunk were you? Did you put up a fight? <laughs> I mean, there's, were you, you know, very clear about saying no? There's a whole list of things that a victim is required to answer for before they're even considered a victim. Otherwise, they were just asking for it, which I think is interesting when we talk about consent and is someone in a state to give consent. I think that that's really one of the big things you have to ask yourself. Well, I think we have to go back. We had brought this up before, but we didn't really answer it. What What is consent? Right. And so I think, first of all, consent is, you know, being clear and saying, yeah, I want to do this <laughs> or, or something. I mean, it, I think that, you know, we're adults here. And as adults, we should say, hey, let's talk about what we actually want and how far we think we want it to go. And then, being able to be in a state to make that decision. You know, some, somebody who's somebody who's drunk is clearly not in a state to give consent. Right. I guess the first thing that happens is that everybody has to be conscious and able to make decisions. If you're in a state where you can't make a decision or you are making an uninformed decision or you're making a... Uh, I don't know. You just have to be able to consciously make a decision. And there are certain things that that requires. Uh, Mental capacity. um, You can't be incapacitated. And you have to be able to communicate in some form. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point is being able to communicate because we've gotten used to in the society. Well, no, if you haven't actively objected, then that's permission. And that's not the case. Right. So we have to talk about affirmative consent then. Yes. Affirmative consent is more than just not saying no. It is saying yes, um, to put it simply. And of course, there's a lot of different ways that you can say yes. uh, But affirmative consent has to be, um, you know, when we're talking about consent, we're talking about affirmative consent. That means there has to be a yes involved in some form, not just a lack of a no. Yeah, and I think that that's very important. And I think other things to consider is, does it really count as consent when you feel pressured that you have to do something? Because, oh, well, we've made out for a little bit. Am I leading somebody on? If I don't finish the deed, have I just led them on? And is it... Okay. These are things I actually think about as a woman who is actually starting to date again. (laughs) These, These are things that I actually think about and have talked to about with other women because I am 
I'm coming from a place where I've only had sex with one person in my whole entire life. And it was my ex and we didn't have sex until after we were married because we were good Mormon kids. And so Mm. I am coming from a place where I am still trying to work this out for myself and trying to figure this out. And it's like, well, if I make out with somebody I've been on a date with, does that mean next time I go out with them, I have to have sex with them? Am I leading them on if I've been making out with them? You know, what am I required to give? And then I have to stop and say, wait a sec, this isn't some sort of weird transaction. I'm not required to give anything. But. Okay, so you you have settled your internal debate. You have just settled it. There's no reason for you to question this anymore because you just gave the answer. You are not required to do anything regardless of whether you're making out. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to go further if you don't want to. I mean, the question of pressure is, why are you feeling this pressure? Is it because of some kind of innate something inside of you that says that, well, I was brought up to believe that every time I make out, I have to have sex with somebody? Or is it because there's someone else here who is pressuring you? Um, Is it an immediate pressure or is it some kind of cultural pressure that is a result of your upbringing? See, and that's kind of hard because quite frankly, uh, when, when you're growing up in like the situation I was growing up in, it was like, oh yes, okay, we can make out, but we all know we're not having sex because we're not having sex because we're not married. (laughs) So clearly we're not going to cross this line because we both know that we're not going to cross this line. I mean, obviously, no matter what religion you are, how you've grown up at some point, someone obviously crosses the line, but that never happened with me. But I think what you run into is now it's like, well, I'm not steeped in this culture anymore. What does the world expect from me? (laughs) So I think it's just kind of, you have all sorts of weird issues, but I think Part of it, too, is you hear these debates like online or on TV about, oh, well, you know, at which date do you have sex with somebody? (laughs) And of course, the answer, the answer should clearly be whenever you feel like it. That should be the answer. But we have all these rules and these milestones that we tend to try and put up around our relationships and our and our interactions. And I think that, that that actually turns what should be very simple into something that feels complex. Yeah, I th- certainly that's out there. I mean, what number date should it be before you start having sex? Th- these are things that come out of maybe a high school type of attitude towards sexuality for people who haven't really been taught because sexual education in this country is pathetic. <laughs> a joke. So we are adults now. So we get past this whole idea of there having to be certain milestones that we have to reach. Everybody's different. Every relationship is different. And people are free to do what they want as long as affirmative consent is involved. And of course, on top of that, being safe is a good idea. But again, we are adults and those are decisions we have to make when we weigh the pros and cons and think about the potential consequences. Yeah, and I think what you said was very interesting that as a culture to some degree, we seem to be stuck in a very adolescent attitude towards sex. And I think we're like you mentioned earlier with the millennials and everything, we're moving away from that. We're moving into a more adult attitude about it. But there seems to be some sort of lag where we have a hard time talking about it. We have a hard time uh, defining our own wants and our own needs and then feeling comfortable communicating those. And, Mm -hmm. and as a society, yeah, it'd be great if we all started acting like adults about this. And 
in addition to being more adult about these things, I think it also helps if we start saying, you know what, it's okay for women to feel comfortable asking for pleasure in the same way that men feel comfortable with it. There was this uh, research, they showed that there are some differences in men's and women's brains, but these structural differences are very small. The indication is that women are just as interested in sexual pleasure as men, but culturally they may have a hard time with that. As we mentioned several times, millennials seem to be overcoming that, which is super fantastic, but it's still something that needs to be talked about, I think. Yeah, I think there's definitely a trend of people, women and men, taking a little more control over their sexual desires and approach. And But I, I think the bottom line is that the differences, like you said, aren't huge. And the more we can find a way to make everybody, you know, as a so- society, we should all be comfortable with expressing exactly what it is that we want. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think... We do need to be careful that we don't swing kind of too far the other way because one of the things you find as you start getting into this sort of empowerment culture and say, oh, yeah, okay, is there this pressure then for me to go out and, you know, totally be promiscuous like men used to be, right? They're players, right? Women are sluts and men are players. But do you feel like you have to go out and do that to be truly empowered. I think that there's there's a weird dynamic going on right now because you don't want because some some women feel like they have to prove that they aren't afraid of like going out there and just going for it. And you shouldn't be afraid of going out there and going for it if that's what you want to do. But if that's really not what you're feeling, then you shouldn't have to feel like you have to do it. Well, that that's not empowerment. It's, it's so weird. No, exactly. <laughs> okay, so there there's two different spectra you're talking about. Right. There is the spectrum of sexual empowerment, and then there's the spectrum of sexual activity, and those do not line up. Empowerment says you're free to do whatever you like, which could mean, or or you're free to at least express your desire to, to do whatever you're like, and that could be either having a lot of sex or it could be having no sex. That is empowerment. So those two lines don't necessarily line up. So empowerment shouldn't have anything to do with feeling pressure to, you know, go the other way and go out there and have as much sex as possible, unless that's something that you want to do. Of course, keeping in mind safety and affirmative consent. I think think that's a really good point is you do need to draw that line and say, okay, what is true empowerment and what is just sexual activity? So I like like that, dropping that knowledge there. (laughs) All right. So I think we've made it pretty clear what affirmative consent is uh, as well and how it fits into the development and how things are progressing in culture today. What are some of the things that you can do right now? Right. So I think the very first thing, as so many things on this show is, and so many things about being an adult, you need to figure out how you feel about sex so that you can figure out your own personal sense of values and what is comfortable for you. So I think. Yeah. And your values are going to be affected by how you grew up and the environment that was around you as you went through adolescence, because that's when that's when we discover sex, and that's when the things that are around us have the most impact. So a lot of the time, you have to think about 
that situation, that that formative time, and determine whether you are comfortable with that or you think that there's something else that would work better for you. Yeah, and I think part of that is is learning what you like and going through the process of evaluating what you like. It doesn't sound particularly sexy or fun, but the reality is is you need to acknowledge when something happens that you like, you're like, hey, I like that. I want more of that. And if something happens that you don't like, then you need to understand that and say, wait, you know, that's not doing it for me. You need to learn that and acknowledge that. When you say something happens, I think we have Sorry. to make it clear that, you know, you're not just an inanimate object that right. things happen to. <laughs> Good point. Um, it, it, this is all about the decisions you make as an individual. And if you need to figure out what you like, you probably need to to try different things or or have or have some kind of innate, you know, very strong feeling about what you might like or might not like without having without having actually experienced it. You know, things things don't happen to you. You have to make the conscious decision and try different things if you and try different approaches to life and to sex and and see what works for you. Yeah, and then along with that, practice saying what you like. And this sounds a little bit strange because you kind of have to say, you have to practice it out loud, maybe by yourself in front of a mirror or, or something, you know, like that old public speaking trick. But practice saying what you like. If you are not comfortable communicating that, then you need to practice so that you have practice saying what you like so that you can tell others. Yeah, absolutely. And part of the things that, you know, another thing you can do right now is to make sure you have a full understanding of what affirmative consent is so that you can give affirmative consent and so that you understand what you need in order to receive affirmative consent. Yeah, I like that idea of you need to respect others and yourself. So we do have a listener question. I have been out with a guy a few times. He seems to be interested in having sex with me. When should I go ahead and do it? When is the right time? You know, it's funny because the immediate reaction that someone will have to that when they hear this question is, you know, the writer says, he seems to be interested in having sex with me. And we all think, huh, well, of course he is. He's a man. Um, all men are interested in having sex all the time, which, of course, is not true. It's a it's a big uh, generalization that, you know, we try to stay away from generalizations like that. Maybe it's likely, but and let's just assume that this listener does know for sure that he is interested in having sex with with the listener. Well, first of all, um, there's an article on adulting I wrote some time ago about when is the right time to have sex with, with someone. The bottom line is... If it's the right time, then everybody will – it's the time that everybody agrees is the right time. It's it's something you feel. You know that you've given thought out to the consequences, and those consequences range from everything from pregnancy to STDs. And the woman in this relationship, in this sexual – whatever's going on, uh, has more of the risk. So that's why – it's important for the woman in, you know, assuming this is a heterosexual, heterosexual relationship, um, there's more effort on the woman to be the person who is giving the consent, uh, which is the case in this question. So, so when should I go ahead and do it? Um, 
it's when you've weighed out the pros and cons and you know what the situation is and you're familiar with yourself and you're comfortable and you feel like it. I don't know where else to go other than that. Is there anything I'm missing, Miranda? No, and I think that pretty much encapsulates this entire conversation because I think a lot of people, when somebody's like, oh, well, uh, should I have sex with them? I don't know. A lot of the conversations that go that way in in a lot of female circles as well. How many dates have you been on with them? Have you have you gotten to second or third base? What you know, just yeah. weird stuff like None that. Of that like, stuff matters. As, as, as if that stuff is going to be your benchmark to now is the magical time to have sex. And I think it, really what it comes down to is: Are you interested in having sex with this person? And do you feel like you will be respected? And do you want to? And and maybe respect isn't even something that you want out of this relationship. I, I, I guess by respecting, I guess I meant, do you feel like your wishes will be respected? Like you'll be in a right, safe right. situation and your wishes will be respected. Yeah, it's not a black and white answer to any of those questions. I mean, you know, there are s- certain situations where if you are comfortable with the idea of dangerous sex, then if you understand the risks and that's something you're willing to accept, then still the answer can be yes, even though you're going against what society is now saying about safe sex and 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 things like that. You you just you know, the bottom line is that legally and morally uh, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody what they should do morally, but let's let's go back to the basics here. And informed informed affirmative consent is just the bottom line, absolutely necessary. Beyond that, it's just a question of are you weighing the risks, and you know, are you comfortable with that? And on that note, why don't you join us and chime in, join us on Facebook and our Facebook community. Go ahead and leave a comment down here at the bottom of this episode. Let us know what you think. What do you think constitutes a safe and respectful sexual situation? What are your thoughts on this whole subject? We'd love to hear from you. All right. And join us next week for another episode of Adulting. This is Harlan and Miranda. Seeing you next week. Thank you for listening to Adulting. Find resources for this episode or download other episodes at adulting.tv.